0: I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to 2 Chronicles chapter 13, page 465, 465 in the Pew Bible. So continuing our series of sermons on these, the work of the Lord through these kings, we've dealt with Rehoboam, and now we come to his son Abijah. And yes, you are seeing that correctly. It's, um, he's given the name Abijah here, and in Kings, he's called Abijam with an M. And I'll explain a little bit about that in the sermon. So chapter 13, and we're going to read a little bit into chapter 14 just to give us some of the context. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemaraim, that is, in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam the son of Solomon when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made you for gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands, Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand, that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come up Behind them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them. And they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets, and the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with great force, so there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, and Joshanah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. But Abijah grew mighty, and he took 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. The rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Iddo. And we'll just go eight verses into chapter 14. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. "'And Asa his son reigned in his place. "'In his days the land had rest for ten years. "'And Asa did what was good and right "'in the eyes of the Lord his God. "'He took away the foreign altars and the high places "'and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim "'and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, "'the God of their fathers, "'and to keep the law and the commandment. "'He also took out of all the cities of Judah "'the high places and the incense altars.' And the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. That's as far as we'll go with the Scripture reading. Our text, the sermon, will then uh, focus on chapter 13 primarily. And in response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 18, stanzas 5, 7, and 8. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel of God, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Maybe you've heard that saying before, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. It means that our Heavenly Father is so powerful, so in control of all things, and so loving toward His creatures, and especially toward His chosen covenant people, that He is willing and able to use weak, sinful people like ourselves, but also even outright, unbelieving, rebellious people of the world. He's willing to use them, to use all kinds of people to do something good. And God does this more often in Scripture and, and throughout history. He takes something that's twisted and warped, and he uses it to bless his people and to further the cause of his kingdom. He uses crooked sticks. Well, Abijah, the king, is one of those crooked sticks. The writer of Kings, as we read it, tells us that he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And yet, the writer of Chronicles tells us a very moving story of how this very same king stood up for God's kingdom. He did it bravely, courageously. Abijah even calls Israel to repent and leads the way in trusting the Lord in the, their, uh, the hour of their greatest need. I mean, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, in God alone, it's writ large, is it not, in the story of Abijah in our text? Whatever else Abijah was in his short kingship, he also knew what it was to humble himself at a certain moment before the Lord and to lean on his promises. And that's something that every child of God needs to practice as well. And so I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God and He will prosper your way. We'll see two things. We are to keep His covenant charge, and we are to lean on His covenant promises. So maybe it's good to begin with the apparent discrepancy between what we read in 1 Kings 15 and what we have in our text, 2 Chronicles 13. If all you read was the account in Kings... You'd think Abijah was a bad king, full stop. I mean, there's only eight verses there. Not much is said about him. And what is said isn't all that good. Kings gives him the name Abijam with an M, which means my father is Yam. So that J in the Hebrew is just a Y sound. My father is Yam. And Yam, don't you know, is Hebrew for sea. My father is the sea. Yam was also used to name the god, as the pagans thought of those gods, the god who controlled the sea was named Yam. So it's possible that the writer of Kings is suggesting that this son of David was so sinful that he was into worshiping the sea god, Yam. And he even took the name Abijam. But Chronicles presents a much more positive picture. He's given here the name Abijah. And that name means my God is Yah, or, which is short for Yahweh. My God is the covenant God of Israel. So that's a name of faith. Even at the end of the story in Chronicles, we see the telltale signs of God's approval resting on Abijah. Because he blesses Abijah with victory in war. He blesses him with growing mighty in military strength. He's able to take cities from his opponents. And he's even blessed with the birth of many children. We saw how those are marks of God's blessings in an earlier sermon. So, if all you read was Second Chronicles 13, you'd think Abijah was a model believer And yet, the chronicler knows there's a sinful side to Abijah, for notice that he does not in this chapter make any assessment of Abijah's reign, like he does for nearly all the other kings that he mentions in his account. Nor does the chronicler contradict the assessment found in the book of Kings, which he's very well familiar familiar with. He also does not hide the fact that Abijah reigns for only three years, and a short reign is typical for those kings who do evil in the eyes of God. And as we read into chapter 14 of 2 Chronicles in the early years of Abijah's son Asa, we discovered that all throughout Judah was a a very big problem. There were foreign altars and high places and Asherim poles. Those are Those are poles dedicated to the false god of the Asherah. So this this was widespread in the early years of King Asa, and he he worked to get rid of them. That means that that kind of false worship developed under the watch of Abijah. Now, we aren't told directly in either Kings or Chronicles that Abijah himself worshipped the false gods. He may have, but he certainly let it happen. He let it spread. And as king, that made him guilty. God had commanded each king of Israel to lead his people in faithfulness to God's covenant. But Abijah, much like his father Rehoboam, seems to have had a divided heart. And so he let things slide in Judah. In fact, that's more or less what the writer of Kings says about him. He doesn't say that Abijah was totally evil. He puts it this way. 1 Kings 15, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had done. It wasn't wholly true. So part of his heart was for God, but not all of it. In other words, King Abijah struggled with divided loyalties. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. Part of him knew the Lord and wanted to serve God, but another part of him was attracted to the world's gods and maybe the world's entertainment and pleasures. Can we relate relate to that? Abijah seems to be like the seed that fell among the thorns in Jesus' parable faith had sprung up in abijah's heart but alongside of it thorns had sprung up and the thorns were in danger of choking out the faith in abijah's heart the thorns being the cares and the comforts and the distractions of this life so it's good to ask yourself and ask myself is this a danger for us is your heart holy devoted holy true To the Lord your God. Now, on the occasion of our text, Abijah is very clearly in a good spot. He's strong in faith. The Holy Spirit is busy in him. And he goes to work, Abijah does, to shepherd Israel in the way that the kings were supposed to do. He sets out to teach the people the way that they should go. We read that the war with the northern kingdom of Jeroboam was a regular occurrence already in the days of Rehoboam and now in Abijah's reign. So it was, it was common as Abijah grew up and it's continuing under his watch. And it would seem that for the most part it was Jeroboam in the north who was the aggressor. Certainly on this occasion it seems to be the case for Abijah is outnumbered two to one. And he spends his speech trying to convince the Israelites to go home and not fight against the Lord. So King Abijah is looking to secure peace. He's not looking to make war. So the aggressor seems to be Jeroboam. And these two armies, they meet on a mountainside, Mount Zema Raim, just over the border between the north and the south, just on Ephraim's side. And that's when King Abijah starts to preach. And he preaches the gospel of the coming Christ. I wondered if you noticed that. It's one of the clearest proclamations after David's day of what God promised to do for David. And through David's line, it comes in verse 5 of our text. Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel, ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. You ought to know that, Jeroboam, and Israel. See, Abijah, whatever his faults has been well taught in what God has communicated in the past to David and even earlier in the Scriptures. Later in his speech, Abijah will refer back to god's laws given in deuteronomy and leviticus here he refers to what the lord promised his great-grandfather david the kingship over israel belongs to david and his sons forever in other words jeroboam your kingship yours was a temporary necessity in the days of my father it was an aberration an exception But God's long-term plan is for one of David's sons to rule over all Israel. In fact, one of David's sons will rule over Israel forever. That was God's promise. Abijah is speaking of the promised Christ, whom we know today by the name of Jesus, son of Joseph, Christ of God, who is king in heaven even as we speak. So Abijah didn't know the name of Jesus, but he had the person of Jesus in mind. God's promises to David, the king is saying, those promises are solid, they're secure, and they're unwavering. Abijah calls the arrangement between the Lord and David a covenant of salt. That's an unusual description. We know what a covenant is, right? Uh, A relationship that binds two parties together. And when it concerns God and his people, it's a relationship based in love. But what is a covenant of salt? It's only used one other time in the Bible to describe God's covenant with the Levites in their service at the tabernacle. And it seems to be a metaphor whose purpose is this, to underline the, the lasting character of God's covenant commitments, God's promises. Just like salt is used or was used in those days to preserve food for a very long time so it wouldn't go bad, so by saying God, God's covenant is a covenant of salt, God is saying this covenant will be preserved not just for a long time but for all time. Some of God's covenant promises, you know, they they come with conditions in the Bible. If you do this, I will do that. But not this one. This one of the, the kingship in the line of David is unconditional. Listen to what God said in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. Speaking to David about David's sons who will be kings, the Lord says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Here comes, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, I won't take my love from your son, David. Oh yes, I will punish if he rebels against me, but I will find a way to make my promise come true and I'll put one of your sons on your throne forever. So Abijah is saying to the northern peoples, oh Jeroboam, oh my brothers of the north, Israel, there is salvation, there is peace with your God only when you cling to the king whom the Lord has anointed and that is not Jeroboam. You see, Jeroboam thought he could do his own thing, go his own way, and he'd be fine. He'd be fine with God. I mean, hadn't God uh, told him by the prophet to take the ten tribes and that he would be the king of those ten tribes of Israel? And of course, that's true. But the same prophet, the Lord speaking through the prophet, also commanded Jeroboam to walk in obedience to all of God's commands. And he made it clear to Jeroboam that his promise to David was still intact. He said to Jeroboam, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, because of the sin of Solomon and Rehoboam, but not forever. I will afflict David's line, but not forever. Jeroboam was king of Israel, yes. And he was thinking to himself, well, the very fact that I'm this king over the 10 tribes, means that all is okay with God, right? But the spirit of Christ, you see, who was in Abijah, Abijah himself is a type of Christ in the line of David. He says loud and clear, no way, Jeroboam. Being king of the 10 tribes is no guarantee that God is with you, having 800,000 soldiers double mine is no guarantee that the Lord is on your side. The way of prosperity, the way of success, is to walk humbly with your God. It is to trust in His covenant promises, including the ones given to David, for the Savior will only come from David's line, not Jeroboam's line. So Abijah is pleading with his people to the north, O Israel, give your heart wholly to the Lord, live in obedience to His commandments, then you may expect that undeserved covenant blessing that your God promises. Our text really puts us in mind of the division between the north and the south. And one of the points the author, the chronicler, wants to make is this, and he makes it all the way throughout his book. You can be in Israel, but not of Israel. In other words, you can biologically be a child of Abraham, a son or daughter of Jacob, a member of God's church, but spiritually you can be a child of the devil and really belong to the world. This is true, the chronicler will go on in different ways, this is true whether you are a citizen of the northern tribes or a citizen of Judah. When you look carefully through the account of the chronicler, at different times the author will use the phrase, all Israel. It's used dozens of times. Sometimes he uses it to describe the north, 10 tribes, sometimes he uses it to describe Judah in the south, sometimes all 12 tribes, but consistently he makes the subtle point that having your citizenship papers in any of the 12 tribes of Jacob does not by itself make you one of God's true covenant people. To be part of that group, part of God's true church, you have to love the Lord your God. Just like the Lord Jesus said in that summary, and quoting Moses, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To say it simply, you have to trust and obey. That's how you love God. You trust Him, and you obey Him. Which is exactly what Jeroboam and the northern tribes were not doing. They were fooling themselves, you see. They, they thought it was okay what they were doing. You remember that Jeroboam had taken a page out of Aaron's book, uh, the high priest Aaron, back in Exodus 32, at Mount Sinai, when the people of Israel wanted to see, visibly see a representation of the Lord their God, at a time when Moses had gone up the mountain to speak with God, and had Moses had been gone a long time, the people were getting restless. They said to Aaron, Make us a God that we can see. So Aaron, what does he do? He made a golden calf. And he declared it to be Israel's God in the singular, referring to Yahweh. You'll find that in the footnote of the NIV. It's mentioned in the singular. That was also Jeroboam's idea with these two calves. They represented not foreign or pagan gods, but the calves represented Israel's God, Yahweh. You can translate in our text the plurals in verse 8 and 9, the plurals, gods, can equally be translated the singular God. It's one of those funny things in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews. Some of those words can be translated either way. In this case, it ought to be taken as a singular. So Israel's sin here in, in, under Jeroboam was not sin against the first commandment, worshiping some other God. It was sin against the second commandment, worshiping the Lord their God by means of these visible images which God had said they ought not to do Ever. They were worshiping God in the way that they thought best. Well, that's a sin we can slip into quite easily, can't we? To claim we are serving God and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, but meanwhile, when you look at how we are acting, when you take a look at our lifestyle, it doesn't really add up. It doesn't line up with how Christ in the Scriptures commands us to live. Jeroboam had erected these golden calves, Bethel and Dan, as alternatives to the temple. He made it very easy for the people to worship Yahweh, just have to go close by to either Dan or Bethel, rather than go all the way to the south, go through that hassle of traveling to God's house in Jerusalem. And God hated that sin says it multiple times in Scripture. He was serving God his own way. Do we serve God our own way? Do we have golden calves in our lives? What's your golden calf? Do we set up easy alternatives? Letting ourselves off the hook from the call to worship in person? with God's people every Lord's Day, morning and eve, afternoon, as the Lord Jesus calls us through the elders that he appointed over this flock. I mean, that is the Lord's way, right? We believe that, that the Lord Jesus put elders in Ancaster Church, and those elders call us to worship on behalf of the Lord, morning and afternoon. We believe that, right? Or have we got a golden calf? Jeroboam and the Israelites chased away the priests whom God had appointed to serve him. God had made a covenant of salt with the Levites. And they set up their own priests in the north who would do things their own way and, and serve at those golden calves and teach the people what they wanted to hear. Are we sometimes in danger of that? What are we doing with our phones? Are we loading up our playlists with podcasts and sermons from here and there and everywhere? that we enjoy listening to, things and topics that tickle our fancy, but when it comes to the preaching in our own congregation are indifferent or neglectful. And I'm not saying a word against uh, other sources of edifying material, but are we neglecting the preaching here where the Lord Jesus has ordained it for us who are members of this flock? we should ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, are we trying to be Christians God's way or our own way? For it's only when we do it God's way that we can expect His blessing. That's what Abijah teaches the people. After describing the disobedience and the false worship of the northern tribes, he summarizes how he and the people of Judah have stayed faithful. Comes in verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron. That's the properly designated tribe and and house. We have Levites and their service. They offer to God every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread of the table of pure gold, and they care for the golden lampstands that its lamps may burn every evening. For, he summarizes it, for we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you, Jeroboam in the north, you have forsaken him. We keep, we maintain what God charges us to do in his covenant. That's the secret to success. Not, you understand, not that our obedience earns us God's favor. Not that by obeying the command, God is now obligated to prosper our way. I don't know, we sinners never earn anything from the Lord. The very act of worship at the temple commanded by God, what is that? That's a a daily admission of sin on our part on the part of the people then and on us today. And it was an admission that a substitute was needed. They saw that in the animal they brought to sacrifice. Every animal that was slaughtered and put on the, on the altar of burnt offering told the people, that should be me there. I should be tied up and slaughtered and burned up. No, every act of worship was a pleading with the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. Keeping the charge of the Lord means in the first place to humble one's heart before God, admitting sin and depravity. It means expressing your need for grace and mercy and salvation and looking to the God of the covenant who promised them to you, looking to them, looking to Him to give them. Jeroboam and the northern tribes in their arrogance went their own way. Despite all the warnings from the prophets, And they did their own thing, deceiving themselves that nevertheless they were somehow in God's good books. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you. I plead with you. Do not deceive yourself. So easy to do. So easy to do. Think you got it right. When you've got it all wrong, follow the Lord's way. Humbly walk with your God, keep his covenant charge, and lean every moment on his covenant promises. For that's what the outnumbered and outmaneuvered King Abijah clearly does. His 400,000 troops face. Jeroboam's 800,000 troops tell me brothers and sisters what would you have done in that situation you're outnumbered two to one it certainly would have been tempting to throw in the towel raise the white flag and negotiate terms of surrender right I mean it's not like Abijah is holed up in some fortress or even in a city where he could possibly defend himself for a time, he's out there in the open country on a mountainside with a valley in between, army against army. How can you beat an army twice your size in open country? Well, the only way you can do it is if the Lord fights your battle. You can do it when you know that the battle belongs to the Lord. That's what Abijah knows. He says it in verse 12, words of trust. Behold, the Lord God is with us at our head and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers. You cannot succeed. You might have 800,000 versus our 400,000, but you cannot succeed. Isn't that amazing? He's so very confident in the Lord his God, isn't he? But I also want you to see the grace that Abijah is extending to his his brother Israelites, because these are his brothers, right? These are actually his people who've separated themselves from him. They've come for war. They want to destroy the house of David and the kingdom of David, the very kingdom through which God will bring the Messiah. But Abijah warns them, don't try it. Don't fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers. You can't win. And that's a call to repentance, isn't it? Just like Rehoboam had kept, his father Rehoboam had kept the road to the north open. You remember that? He didn't build siege works and fortresses up there he kept the road open for travelers to come down from the north to join him in the south so abijah with this whole sermon is saying to his brothers in the north come back come back there's no need to stay away there's no need to stay with jeroboam who's clearly leading you away from the lord but come back to the kingdom of david come back to faithful worship of the lord here at the temple Worship how God wants you to worship. Keep the charge of the Lord. Don't fight your very own covenant God, the God of your fathers, he says. Don't fight Him. Embrace Him in humbleness of heart, my people. Come back. That's another beautiful theme running through the whole book of Chronicles, the theme of God's grace, the theme of the Lord's readiness and willingness to forgive the theme of an open door that leads back home to enjoy again the covenant blessings of God. That's about as Christian a theme as you can get, right? Because the old covenant and the new covenant are Christian. They agree with each other. King Abijah and every faithful king of Judah eagerly desired, and they did all they could to encourage the return of the wandering sheep of the north, We'll see it in the next king, King Asa. Later, King Josiah will do it. And perhaps King Hezekiah does it most pointedly of all. And you know, the future son of Abijah, he's gathering his sheep from all over. What did he say in John 10? I have sheep from another sheep pen, and I must gather them in two. That was the Lord Jesus Christ that great son of Abijah would sacrifice his royal life on the cross to open this very door that Abijah's talking about. He opens a door to every prodigal son and every prodigal daughter, and it stays open while there is life. It stays open until the the day that the Lord Jesus comes back on the clouds. Remember that, brothers and sisters, about the prodigals in your life. People you know and love who have gone astray. Keep loving them. Make sure they hear from you. That the door back home is open, wide open. And that you're ready. You're ready to help them with everything you've got to come through the door. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Abijah is here trusting in, or maybe more accurately, we could translate, he's leaning upon the promises of the Lord all the way through. That verb is used in verse 18, describing Abijah and Judah as relying on the Lord, and you could literally translate leaning on the Lord, and there's a kind of a beautiful image there. To lean on someone or something is to really depend upon that person or thing to prop you up and keep you going. That's very much the sense here. Without that person or thing, you would fall and collapse. You would be ruined. So the thing that you're leaning on has to be strong. In fact, it has to be stronger than you. Dependable. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. And Abijah has found something to lean on, namely the promises of the Lord, his covenant God, promises that he finds all the way back in Numbers 10. In verse 12, he mentions the priests and their battle trumpets. He says, we have God's priests with us, with their battle trumpets to sound the call against you. We read in Numbers 10 how the Lord had commanded two silver trumpets were to be made, And given to the priests and they had uh, several purposes but when there was an attack one of the purposes was when there was an attack then god said this you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you should be remembered before the lord your god and you shall be saved from your enemies that was the lord's promise numbers 10. you see how well abijah knew the bible how valuable it is to know Scripture, right? Then you can start putting it into practice when you know it. He didn't just know the Word of God. He leaned upon the Word of God. He believed what God said. He counted on God coming through. How are you and I doing with that? Are we leaning upon the promises of our God? Do we see those promises for what they are? Solid rock, immovable, unchanging, always dependable. When God commits himself to you and to your children as Father who adopts us as his children, as Savior who washes us clean of our guilt before him, and Sanctifier who cleanses us from daily sin, God never turns his back on us. All we have to do is lean, lean on him. And Abijah does this. He follows through. His words were not just hot air. Jeroboam, for his part, thinks that he's got the battle in the bag, doesn't he? He's divided up his huge army. He sets an ambush behind Judah and his main army's facing Judah, so he's got them boxed in. So Abijah and his 400,000 soldiers, they're, they're done like dinner. There's no escape. They're on the open plain in the valley there. But by grace, the faith of Abijah holds. And what does he do? Well, he He leans on those promises, and he starts giving commands. Priests, blow your horns. The Lord will remember us. The Lord will defend us. Men of Judah, raise the battle cry, for the battle belongs to the Lord. And what happens when he and Judah do these things? The adversary goes down to defeat. 800,000 men, we read, flee before 400,000. And by the end of the whole battle, 500,000 of the northern soldiers, the adversaries, lie dead in the field. And King Jeroboam, who, who once was so mighty, is reduced to a former shadow of himself and soon thereafter dies. And Abijah grows mighty and prospers under the blessing of Yahweh. Abijah even took cities away from Jeroboam, including, did you notice that, he even took the city of Bethel, where one of those golden calves of Jeroboam had been set up. So the bull calf, the bull of Bethel, is really now dead meat. Jeroboam had arrogantly trusted doing things his own way. But at the end of the day, the Lord showed the vanity of that path, and he made clear that the only path to prosperity is to humbly walk with your covenant God. Abijah shows us a glimpse of how to do it, but our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of Abijah and of David, shows us the way perfectly his heart the heart of jesus was wholly true to the lord his god he kept the covenant charge completely and he leaned on every covenant promise fully even trusting that his god would raise him from the dead so he could give his life away for his people and he did He did all of that, King Jesus, in our place as our substitute to earn for us, you could say, to to open the door for us back to the Father's house where we all, crooked sticks, right? Where we, crooked sticks, can learn to walk a straight mile as the Spirit of Christ leads us in covenant faithfulness more and more. The door is open. The way through is clear. Walk humbly with your God, and He will prosper you. Amen.